Good morning. Can you hear me at all? Anybody? Thumbs up in the back. Doing good? All right, great. How many of you can remember your first kiss? Okay. Wow, a lot fewer than I would have thought. Um, This is going to not go well. Um, Anyways, just joking. If you can recall, or maybe certainly you probably remember who it was with. Um, If you can't, that's probably not very good. Um, If you can remember it, was it everything that you hoped it would be? Was it, was it the movie moment? Were there fireworks shooting off in your mind? Was the music playing in the background? The wedding bells, were they ringing as you had uh, your first kiss? For me, um, I am blessed to have a very bad memory. Okay? <laughs> Terrible. Um, so I can honestly and truly say the only first kiss I remember was the first kiss with my wife. Doesn't mean she was my first kiss, but it's the only one I remember, truly. And I think that counts for something. Uh, this is sort of how it happened. Let me set it up for you. Is that um, it was a dark, cold winter night in Grove City, which every win- winter night in Grove City is dark and cold. Um, it, was, it was raining. There was mist coming down or walking to the door. You know, I don't even know what's happening. All of a sudden, um, there it was, and it happened. Okay? Um, come to find out later that that is exactly the first kiss that Megan had in her mind for us. And as I would learn through uh, nearly seven years of marriage, if Megan has something in her mind, you can put it down that it's going to happen. Okay, she had planned it out to be exactly what it was. And this is true, correct? It is true. And all that to say is that for her, it was everything that it could have been. Now, your first kiss may not have been um, like our first kiss. Maybe your first kiss, when you think about it, you know, it was kind of a dud, and you're thinking, wow, that was all that there was. Um, some of you guys in here, I know that you're still waiting for your first kiss, and you have these great expectations in your mind of what it's going to be like, this life-altering moment, and sadly to say, it's probably not going to be that. It, it may be a time where 20 years from now, you're looking back, I can't even remember what that girl's name was. I don't even know who that was. Um, so your first kiss is not necessarily a life-altering event. Truly. Now, some people have some awesome stories, don't get me wrong, where you know, their first kiss was with their husband, with their wife, on their wedding, on their wedding day, and those stories are, are awesome. But for most of us, that's not quite how it turns out to be. Now, the reason I'm talking about this, of course, is not that we're going to have some uh, relationship advice this morning. Um, if you want some relationship advice, please don't ask me. It worked out for me, but honestly, I don't remember how how it did, and I can't even give you any tips as to making yours uh, work out like mine. Um, But instead, what we are going to talk about, we're in Psalm 2. We're continuing along in our messages on the Psalms. And what we are going to look at today is a very significant kiss. This is a kiss that is life-altering, and in fact, it is eternity-altering, the kiss that we are going to look at today. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 2. You know, and I don't want you to, to you know, 
you're still thinking about your first kiss and how awesome it was, please stop thinking about it right now. Or how terrible it was, please don't think about that anymore either. I know we could lose a lot of people uh, right here at the beginning. Um, or dreaming about the, the person that's going to be your first kiss. That's not what this is about. Um, Psalm 2. This is the first of, a, um, of what we'll find out to be several Messianic Psalms, which are Psalms about the coming Messiah. Psalms about the coming Messiah. This is, this is the first, I believe this is the most quoted um, in the New Testament, Psalms about the Messiah. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, Psalm 1 was last week. And Psalm 1 and 2, by, from what we can understand, a lot of people think that they were actually one psalm together at one time. Um, the, the earliest manuscripts of the book of Acts, uh, which quotes Psalm 2, um, actually attributes that passage to Psalm 1. Um, if you look at the beginning of Psalm 1, it said, blessed is the man. At the end of Psalm 2, it said, blessed are all. So these kind of bookend one thought together. So the Psalm 1, Psalm 2, we can put them together as to form one complete thought. Okay, Psalm 1 um, is about the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Psalm 2 continues that thought over, but instead of it being um, individual People, we see that these are they're, they're, the idea just gets expanded upon. It becomes bigger. Okay, so Psalm two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us." We'll pause there. So this psalm is actually broken down into four sections. Okay, so this would be the first section. Um, each section is three verses, and we're going to see uh, one thought for each section. If we could describe a thought here, and the thought that I uh, have seen come up over and over again is describing man's puny attempts to thwart the sovereign will of God. Okay, our puny attempt to thwart the sovereign will of God. This, verses 1 through 3, describe this cosmic revolt. Okay, it reveals the nature of the heart of humanity is found here in Psalm 1 through 3. Nations rage, peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves together, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That there's this rebellion is in the heart of humanity. That humanity in our fallenness will do anything to not submit to the authority of God. We'll do anything not to submit to the authority of God. There's a, a story of the last pagan emperor of Rome, and his name was Julian the Apostate. And he's called Julian the Apostate because he actually grew up within a Christian family. Okay, he grew up as a Christian, and at some point, um, he turned his heart against God. He, he made it his mission to seek out and eradicate Christianity out of the empire of Rome. To the point where he's on his horse and he's holding his sword up at heaven and pointing it to God as a declaration of war against God. Okay, when I said the last pagan emperor of Rome, you can see it didn't really go well for him. Uh, he had a very tumultuous, brief reign. And, and he's out on the battlefield and he's speared, uh, some say through, like through the guts. Okay, a very terrible way to die. And as as is recorded in history, his last recorded words were, you have conquered, O Galilean. Okay, so he had at one point recognized, he had been raised to learn that Christ was king, 
Yet he had pointed his sword in defiance against God, and yet on his deathbed with his dying words, he is understanding that Christ has conquered. So all the plotting and conniving and planning, um, this isn't just for rulers, this is for, for all of us. That we, make, we want to make the rules, we want to be free from an oppressive rule of God. This is not just describing nations and kings. This is describing my heart and yours. That's, that's the nature of the rebellion of humanity. So that's what we see in the first three verses. The next three verses, this is God's response. Okay, verse 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is actually the only recorded time in Scripture that God laughs. The only recorded time in Scripture that God laughs. And you would think it would be some awesome joke. You know, what's the best joke in the world? The one that God laughs at, of course. You know, that's the one he tells. What's, what's the biggest joke to him is that we think we can be him. That's a joke. That, that these kings want to set themselves on the throne of heaven. That is a sad joke to God. See, it's not really funny to us that we want to put ourselves on God's throne and he laughs at us. That's, that's not a good sign for us. There's only one royal throne and it's already occupied. As these verses describe the wrath of God, that he will terrify, he will terrify them in his fury. Because the, terif- the wrath of God is a terrifying and frightening reality. Okay, and for many of us, and for me, as I'm, as I'm reading this, this passage this week, I'm going, this doesn't really jive with my image of Christ. I don't know if it really jives with your image of Christ if you think of a God of wrath and fury as you think about Jesus. You know, I could point you to this window right here. What do we have? A, a peaceful shepherd holding a lamb. That's not scary. You know, here Christ is, is praying and he's pouring out his heart and asking God to do something. And we're not afraid of Jesus. We shouldn't be afraid of Jesus there. But in fact, God is not something to be toyed or trifled with. Okay, if I only believe in, in the loving kindness of God and I don't understand the wrath of God, then my image of God is going to be very incomplete. It'll be very incomplete. Somewhere in our belief system, we have to understand the wrath of God. Okay, if, we, if we call him omnipotent, which means all-powerful, and if we call him sovereign, which means that the, the supreme ruler, then we understand that God doesn't need our opinions. He doesn't need my permission to do anything. Um, he has no need to fear my wrath. But I must surely fear the wrath of God. He can handle my wrath. I can come at God with everything I've got. He didn't need to come at me with everything he has. This is the truth of God. We can't downplay or ignore this. The truth is that God is all-powerful and he is all-loving. And somehow these two things go together. We have to understand that there's a promise of the love of God, but there's also a fear of the power of God. A fear of the power of God. So if you look in verse 7 through 9, we'll keep going. I tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 7, he says, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Okay, this, this verse is used in Hebrews and Acts to, to explain that Jesus is God. To explain that, that, that somehow uh, Jesus and God are of the same substance as we uh, saw before, that, that the world was created through Christ, who Jesus did not become God when he was born. He did not become God on the Mount of Transfiguration. He did not become God after he was raised from the dead. Yet he always was and always has been God. Um, if we try to think about it too much, there's a lot of uh, words of warning about trying to understand this concept of the Trinity. Um, I don't understand it perfectly. I can't explain it perfectly. I doubt very many of you can understand it perfectly. Okay, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, In attempting to define the Trinity or unveil the essence of divinity, many men have lost themselves here, great ships have floundered. Okay, if we get too caught up on this idea and trying to understand this mystery of God, we can, we can get completely washed away. We can get completely um, stuck right here. But the reality is that Jesus is God, and the reality is that Jesus is much more terrifying than we typically like to imagine. He is. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to, to Revelation chapter 1. Here John is, is writing a letter to the seven churches of Asia. And he has a vision and, and he's, he's up in heaven. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. He holds the keys to death and Hades. This is not typically the image of Christ that we have. We don't put this image up on the stained glass window because that would scare everyone away. That's not the image that we typically have. But this is God's anointed, the king that he has placed on the throne. Nothing can stand before him. This is the Apostle John that falls at his feet dead because he's so terrified of the Son of God standing before him. So we see that humanity has chosen rebellion against God. God laughs and says that my king is on the throne. Our rebellion is doomed from the start. There's not anything we can do. Now this this message isn't to those who, who are just unbelievers and those who are believers and going, yes, this is, this is me, this is you. Um, but I think a lot of times uh, what happens is that we try to usurp God's authorities and our authority in my own life. I try, to, I try to take him off the throne and I try to put myself there. It's not, it's, it's, it's not me deciding I can't even place myself on the throne because Christ is already there. Okay, I don't have that power. 
But what I can do is recognize him. Um, and so turn back to, to Psalm 2. We'll finish up this psalm. Verses 10 through 12. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we're left with really two options here. And the, the options are we can either curse the son or we can kiss the son. Okay, to, to curse the son is to continue along the path that we're already on. It's to continue in our humanity's, uh, our fallen nature's rebellion. You know, it's, it's to continue in my foolish declaration of self-reliance saying, God, I don't need you. I've got everything I need. Because uh, we've talked before about understanding the goodness of God. That if we truly understood the goodness of God, we would never be able to think about anything but God. And I think part of the reason um, for the fallenness of man, for the cursing of the son, is that we also don't truly understand the wrath of God. Now, if we truly understood the power and the wrath of God, we would fear nothing but God. We would. We wouldn't continue along our foolish way. See, the wrath of God is fully deserved by every man and woman and child, but it will only be fully experienced by those who have not, as verse 12 says, taken refuge in him. Okay, it's fully deserved by everyone, but it will only be fully experienced by those who have not taken refuge in Christ. So, so that's the option to curse the son or to kiss the son. And if we choose to kiss the son, here are uh, the four implications of what that means for us, according to Charles Spurgeon. The first, the, the, the first implication of the kiss is, is this of reconciliation. Okay, the first implication is reconciliation. To be reconciled to God. It's a kiss of repentance and confession and sorrow and us coming to God with an understanding that we have wronged him. The Bible gives us uh, some great images of a kiss of reconciliation. One is in Genesis with Jacob and Esau. And Jacob uh, has wronged his brother and the two finally meet and he's terrified of what his brother will do to him. And yet they come together and it says that they weep, they kiss, his neck, they kiss their neck and they weep. This kiss of reconciliation. Um, you know, my grandfather always used to tell my brother and I to fight nice. And then when we were done, he'd tell us to kiss and make up. You know, we never did that, of course. Um, but this is what this kiss means. Kiss of reconciliation. This is the kiss of the, of the prodigal son returning to his father, fearing what his father will do to him and fearing what his father thinks of him, only to discover that his father has been waiting for him to return that whole time. Because we come to the Lord in confession and repentance, it's an understanding that we have done wrong to God. We don't come to God with excuses. We don't come to him explaining why we chose against him. We don't, he already knows our hearts. He knows our sorrow. That's the first kiss, is the kiss of reconciliation. The next one is the kiss of allegiance. To, to yield to his will. Okay, if, the, if the first kiss is one of reconciliation, we can call that um, actually being made right with God. So the first kiss is, is part of justification. We're made right before God through the work of his son Jesus. The second kiss, um, therefore, goes along with sanctification. If we yield ourselves to his rule, if we place ourselves under God's commands, we begin to come more and more like him. 
This is the process of sanctification. And, and you can't separate one from another. You can't be justified without being sanctified. But conversely, you can't be sanctified without being justified. We need to understand that we have done the wrong. We need to submit to him, to recognize him as a king. And remember, there can only be one king, and it's not me, and it's not you. The third a kiss, third implication of the kiss is that of worship. That of worship. This is the highest joy of a Christian is to be able to worship the king. If you want to turn with me back to Revelation chapter 5, we have this amazing image of all of creation worshiping the king. Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. John writes again, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. He is worthy to receive all of our glory and honor and blessing and praise. This is the kiss of worship. That one day all the creation will fall and worship before the one true King. And finally, from there, turn to Luke 7. The last implication of the kiss. This one is perhaps the most beautiful. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. The final implication of the kiss is that of affectionate gratitude. Affectionate gratitude. Uh, Here Jesus is has been invited to someone's home to have dinner with them. And a woman comes up, uh, verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 32, or 36. One of the Pharisees invited him to ask to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his plate at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his face with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. The affectionate gratitude, kiss of affectionate gratitude towards God. 
with a full understanding of our sin and what it has cost Christ to take them from us. To understand, to see our sins for what they are. Not to look at ourselves and, and think, oh, I've been forgiven just a little bit. and I'll, I'll follow Christ, but I'll, I'll give him my allegiance and I'll, I'll reluctantly follow him and reluctantly worship him. That makes it for a terrible Christian. But if I truly understand the cost of the forgiveness of my sin, I will have no choice but to offer an affectionate gratitude towards God. See, the Pharisees won't be grateful. They can't be grateful. If I think I've not been forgiven much, I'm not going to be grateful for much. But if I see my sins for what they are, I'll be forever grateful to God. So this leaves us with, with, with one thought here. Um, and I know we've, we've talked about the power of God. We've talked about now about the love of God. Okay, grace and truth. Uh, and, and there is a, a place for both fear and love to be used, I believe, in an effective presentation of the gospel. Okay, we can use fear and love because that's uh, what Scripture gives us. You know, we don't want to scare people into believing only as a fire insurance against hell. That makes for some pretty poor believers. We don't want to, to, to display, to demonstrate the wrath of God and have people come and give their lives to Christ in and, and mass and then and, um, walk out of the room and believing that they have appeased the wrath of God. That's not what Scripture teaches us. But on the other hand, it's deadly to presume upon the grace of God. We can't just come believing that, that God is love um, He's taken everything away, that, that, that there is nothing that goes along with that. Okay, there's um, sanctification and justification. The two go hand in hand. It's deadly to presume upon the grace of God. Uh, Spurgeon says that fear without joy is torment, and joy without holy fear would be presumption. Okay, fear without joy is torment, and joy without holy fear would be presumption. So Christ gives us this command. To serve with fear and rejoice with trembling. To kiss the Son. Okay, remember, this is that kiss that will forever change everything. It's the one kiss with all these implications that when we come and submit ourselves to him, this is what we are saying. He is offering us love and forgiveness. We are offering him fearful service. We come as, a, as an act of worship and we are doing it out of the gratitude of our hearts. Spurgeon says this finally, that those who will not bend must break. But those who find refuge in him will be forever blessed. Those who do not bend to the throne of God, God will break. That's what we see here. But those who find refuge in him will be forever blessed. And Hebrews six nineteen says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Christ can be our sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. And we do not have to, to go here and there. We don't have to be crushed by every circumstance in life. But if we take refuge in him, he can be the anchor of our soul. So let's pray. Father God, you are good, powerful. Lord, I confess often I do not fear you. 
God, I lack understanding of what my sins have cost you. Lord Jesus, and, and presume upon your grace and goodness. Lord, you are the king, the one true king. Father, regardless of what any of us in here think or believe, you are the king. We ask, Lord, that you would be at work in our lives. God, that you would expose our sin, expose our pride. God, that we would submit to you, that we would offer a kiss to you. Lord, that we would follow you and worship you and love you for how much you have loved us. Lord, that you could help us to understand your love and your power in a more full and complete way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.